0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, would you invite, let me invite you to find the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And when you find 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning, whether you have a app on your device or a printed copy, as I always encourage you to bring to church with you, I'd, I'd like for you to find, we're going to start reading about verse 12, but I'm really going to dig deep into verses 16 and 16. 17 and 18 this morning. If you are a guest, and we have many guests today because we have the opportunity to dedicate those little ones to the Lord, uh, we're in a sermon series that's very much a vision journey as well. The pattern of our preaching ministry at Church at the Mill is to take a book of the Bible and to walk through it chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse, word by word. We're in the book of Exodus right now, but we pause this fall because of the juncture we find ourselves as a church And so we began this sermon series called More Than Ever, really wrapped around a singular thought that some moments in life matter more than others. The moments those little ones were born forever changed those families' lives. And life certainly has many mundane moments. There are many moments that are rather ordinary, but then there are moments that are extraordinary. And I believe we are in one of those moments as a church. And several weeks ago, when I introduced this sermon series I took an extra special amount of time to present to you statistically what is happening in our church and around us, not because the scorecard or the metric is always numbers, but the numbers do tell the story. And I really wrapped that presentation in three statements. More than ever, God has been good to our church. He has been so Faithful to us in so many ways. And I shared that with you. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages. They're available on virtually every platform. But many of you may not know that Church at the Mill has our own podcast channel. And I would encourage you to subscribe to that. We've been dropping some podcasts about this journey. And if you're a podcast person, this is a great way to use those times in the car, those times jogging or running or working where you can listen to. Kind of feel like you're on the inside of everything that's happening. That's certainly our desire. God has been good to our church. More than ever, our community needs the gospel. Seven out of 10 homes, 70% of Spartanburg County is not connected to a Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching, Spirit-filled church. If you pass 10 homes this morning, seven of those homes are people that are either at home or, sadly, they're connected to a church that no longer preaches the gospel. We are not in the Bible Belt anymore. We may be a people filled with a landscape of churches, but we're not in the Bible Belt anymore. And then that leads to the third statement. More than ever, we've been positioned to do something about it. We're not the end all. We're not the only people who are making a difference in our community. I'm so grateful for the work of other churches. But we are one of those churches that God has strategically blessed and placed for us to take advantage of this moment. And so I've been defining more than ever in some very clean, clear language. Clarity matters. So, what is more than ever? Well, let me give you the definition. More than ever is a three-year spiritual journey of generosity to provide financial funding for debt retirement and the expansion of more campuses. Our desire is to enlist every member in the spiritual and financial journey and guest that word is in there for a reason. If you came today to worship with us, if you're here to see a family member be dedicated to the Lord, we don't want anything from you other than the opportunity to encourage you. But for our members, one of my roles is to always challenge us to find God's agenda and be on it. And I believe we have identified what that is when 70% of the families in our community are not connected to a Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching, Spirit-filled church. We need to do something about that. So to Every member in the spiritual and financial journey of supporting our church's vision to become a deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, highly impactful, multi-site church. This morning, there are four campuses that make up Church at the Mill. Of course, we are the central campus. We have a group of people worshiping in Woodruff and a group of people worshiping in in Lake Cooley, which has existed since May. And then there is a small but important group in an Asian congregation that worships in another smaller room on our campus today. We see 2024 as the opportunity to online at least two more campuses Not where there is simulcast video feed, but where live preachers preach the same text that I text and where men and women serve with our team as we ask our members to go back into the communities where they live and worship, believing that a life-giving church closer to unchurched people increases the likelihood that that person will come to church with you. We saw this in Woodruff when we sent 200 people down there, and now they're averaging 400. We saw this at Lake Cooley when we sent 200 people to Lake Cooley, and now they're averaging around 400. There are people there who were not in church who are there because the church is now in their community bringing life. And a young man under my leadership is cracking open the book and preaching God's Word. This is the direction that we are going. If we believe, that we exist to have a big, beautiful building and a committed pastor and a wonderful staff and precious babies and a nice parking lot and an indoor playground and great children's programming. And that's it. We just circle the wagons. Two things will happen. Number one, we'll be held accountable for missing this opportunity. Number two, we'll be dead in two generations. Our church will be dead in two generations if we begin to think that we somehow have arrived because we have a big, beautiful worship center and a committed pastor and a wonderful staff and a steady flow of new members. God is sending us people to turn them out, to go back into their communities, to create more places where God's Word is preached, where discipleship is emphasized, where we care about people. And so I want you to understand this very clearly because October 22nd is coming. And on October 22nd, every family in our church that feels led to, there's no coercion. I can't force you to do anything. I don't have any authority over your life. The Word of God has authority over your life. But every family will join Laurel and I in making a monthly commitment above our tithes and offerings to give to more than ever. And we're going to use those dollars to do three things, and only three things. We're going to retire our debt. We're going to get debt free. I've been telling you that when we get debt free, We free up a million dollars a year for ministry and missions. Number two, we're going to use those dollars to secure and prepare the physical locations of our current and future campuses, the attention that Woodruff's campus needs and Lake Cooley needs and so on and so forth. And number three, there's upfront cost in starting campuses. It's very difficult to do that out of the operating account without challenging God's people. So that's what we're going to do. Now, you may think... Okay, I get it. We are about growing capital, cash, so we can grow campuses and that'll grow the crowd. Eh, wrong. That's not it. We want to grow the church. We want to grow the church. There's only one way to grow the church: grow Christians. That's all you can do. You can grow a crowd, but you don't get anything eternally. You can grow capital and cash, but any building we build will be pushed down in 300 years. But if you grow the church, then lives are changed eternally, and they make an exponential impact on the lives around them. I mean, think about it for just a moment. In 1988, 30 people started what is Church at the mill. You saw those precious little babies. They're they're wonderful, super expensive, but wonderful. Not, Not one of those babies in their little undeveloped mind can fathom that in 1988, 30 people in a retired living room, in a retired pastor's living room, had a vision to start a church on this side of town. Yet, because of the faithfulness of those 30 people and thousands since them, these little ones have a church family to come alongside their family, to love and support and encourage them. That's the legacy. That's what we're trying to do. And so, I want to talk about growth this morning, but not numeric growth, not financial growth. That's too low of fruit, spiritual growth. Because guess what happens when people start growing spiritually? (laughs) Coming to church is an automatic serving and giving just as an outflow. Numbers can't be the standard for growth in a church. They should be the symptom. Spiritual growth then creates an environment where people want to share their faith and they want to serve and they want to give because they're thankful for what the Lord has done in their life. And that's how you guard against it becoming legalistic or manipulative or momentum building that's based on messaging and merchandise and marketing. No, those are all tools that we bring to bear, but what we want is for people to be growing in the Lord. And and this is really tied to what we've done during More Than Ever. I've not preached one message on finances. I've not done that. It's about vision because People don't give because they're begged to give. People don't give because they're coerced or guilted into giving. You can get a little bit out of anybody. But when people dig deep and give, they give because they believe in a cause. They believe in a vision, a direction that God has given us. And and ultimately, that's why I've asked you to revisit with me our vision. And to look at it in terms of what we value, what's important, because values drive decisions and direction. Every decision you make in your life is connected to something that you value. If you deeply value your health, you'll eat differently. If you deeply value your marriage, you'll pursue your spouse. If you deeply value securing a financial future for your family, you'll work hard and make good decisions with your finances. If you deeply value reading, you'll buy books. If you deeply value the outdoors, you'll be outside. If you deeply value your pets and the people that you draw joy from, then you'll spend time with your friends and you'll spend time with the animals in your life. Every value you have manifests into a behavior. So, what does a church value? Well, we have identified six. I've already dealt with several of these. We value the gospel of God in all things. That's two weeks ago. We value the Word of God in preaching and the glory of God in worship. That was last week. And this morning, we come to the legacy of God in the next generation, and the growth of God in us. With those two values, I would like to provide a a little bit deeper description. Valuing the legacy of God in the next generation means that we disproportionately invest in the faith of our children, students, and the young families they represent. We intentionally spend more time, effort, and money in the next generation than we do our own. Because the statistics bear out that the vast majority of born-again Christians make a decision to trust Christ before their 14th birthday. Meaning that our greatest mission field are the precious little souls that the Lord has given to us. And we stand with every child and explain to them that it must be your decision to trust and follow the Lord. But the ability of a child to understand and know and trust and follow the Savior is deeply impacted by the environment in which he or she is raised. And while we can never take the place of the Christian home, we want to be a church that supplies Christian homes, Christian parents and Christian children with the resources, relationships, and encouragement they need. And when we join together by mutual encouragement, we create the synergy needed to help us have an environment where children understand why is it that dad and mom are different? Why is it that it's more than religion or ritual for my mother or my father? I mean, think about what we're seeing happen. Let me give you an example. In this room, right where you're seated, for those of you online, in the room that you're not seated, we'll see you next week. Wednesday night, 600 students worshiped Jesus on a regular Wednesday night. On a regular Wednesday night. Wasn't a conference. Wasn't a rally. We didn't give away an iPad. 600 students. We have a beautiful student center. We're using it this morning. We'll use it all morning and all day. We're grateful for it. But the student ministry has already outgrown the student center. So the worship ministry had to completely alter its rehearsal so that the students could worship in here on Wednesday night because they said, we believe more passionately in the next generation than we do our own convenience. And 600 students were worshiping in this room. Are all of them exactly where they need to be spiritually? No. But all of them were exactly where they needed to be Wednesday night in the church, hearing the Word, worshiping and growing in their faith. We're going to disproportionately spend money and time and effort on the next generation. And then it leads to you and I thinking about our own growth. Of what does it look like to grow spiritually? And actually, if you preach a message like this, there's two parts, if you'll go with me. The one is theological, what we believe about spiritual growth. And then one is methodological. That's just a fancy word for what do we do based on what we believe. This is important. It's why values drive decisions and direction. So let's start with the theological approach to spiritual growth. With Second Corinthians open, the Apostle Paul is writing his final letter to the Corinthian believers. And in this letter, he's talking about many subjects, but one of the subjects is the transforming power of Christ in a Christian's life. And what he does is he contrasts the experience of the new covenant with the old covenant. Old covenant being that which is expressed in the Old Testament, which was a precursor, a prerequisite to the new covenant. The old covenant delivered the law, which established the holiness of God and God's standard for our lives. But the law was never meant to deliver salvation. There's only one way the law saves you, and that is if you never break it. Which is why, of course, the new covenant, which was always in the mind of God redemptively, it was the purpose of the old covenant to pave the way for the new covenant. The new covenant was Christ coming and fulfilling the law in our place. And then the Lord attributing Christ's perfect obedience to our account when we place our faith in Him. In other words, He took my place on a cross to die for me, and He took my place in perfect obedience to live for me. So, when I trust Christ, His death pays for my sins, and His life delivers in me the power to obey and honor the Lord that does not exist in me prior to trusting Christ. This is why spiritual growth must always be tied to the gospel, it is not behavioral modification. We're not moralist. There are many moral people today. There are many moral religions. People outside of the world of religion often point out that many of the world's largest religions have similarities in their teaching. I would admit that. But when you drill down to the very core of every other religion, it is man's effort to appease or please his version of whatever God he serves. Christ is different. Christ does not come and say, get to me. Christ says, I'm coming to you to redeem you and to save you so that a Christian does not grow spiritually in hopes of getting Christ. A Christian grows spiritually because Christ has made them new on the inside. And Paul picks up that language beginning in verse 12. Since we have of chapter 3, since we have such a hope We are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. This is that moment in Exodus. If you're with me at Church of the Mill, we'll get to that in a few weeks Eh, maybe a few months, I don't know, but it's in chapter 34. So we'll get there where Moses comes off of the Mount of Sinai and he's been in the presence of God and he's received the commands of God and the glory of God called the Shekinah glory is so great on him that he's radiating the presence of God and the Israelites demanded that a veil be put up. And the scripture says, Paul grabbed that analogy, that moment, and he says, let me contrast that with what Christ has done. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. I have some Orthodox Jewish friends in Israel. I texted a lady yesterday who is a tour guide for the groups that I take over there. And I said, are you safe? How can we pray for you? We interacted a little bit. And that would be the fundamental difference between she and I. She knows tremendous amounts about the gospel. She knows about Christ. She would tell you she even admires Christ. But she does not believe He is the Messiah. The veil still remains. But when you come to a place where you recognize that He's the Son of God, the veil is lifted, and then a progression of growth begins to take place. Look what it says, beginning in verse 15. Yes, to this, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord—come on, somebody—but mm. when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit—that's a very important Trinitarian verse there— Equating the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus and the Father's very important. One God, three persons, all three co-equal in the Godhead. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Not burden, not obligation, not guilt. Preacher said we ought to give a little bit. I guess I'll liquidate that stock I've been holding on to. Y'all take a timeshare? No. We ain't taking your timeshare. But I will take your car, your donkey, your 40 acres, whatever you got. We know the people of fast cash. We will liquidate it and give it to the Lord. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, not your preachers, your evangelists, your teachers, your theologians, not the women's Bible study director who seems to have so much more insight than you do. Listen, we all— we all, I'm going to say it again. We all, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. The word in the Greek, you'll recognize, whether or not you know any Greek, it's actually pronounced here, metamorpho. Of course, it's where we get our English word, metamorphosis. And when you get to study the caterpillars with your children in preschool, You talk about the change that happens, the metamorphosis, the transformation from something that was this to something that was that. In in human terms, those babies for just a matter of a few years will be able to be held, but no mother in this room can pick up and hold your 25-year-old son. A metamorphosis has happened. A transformation from a little baby boy to a full-grown man happens. So, Paul says, a metamorpho." He says, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then he wants to make it very clear. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this progression really lays out beautifully. I'll give it to you this in in the sequence of the progression. First of all, growth begins with believing. This is why any church that's concerned about spiritual growth is concerned about lost people. Because you don't have anybody to grow unless people are getting saved. This is why churches that turn inward and just host Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and never care to reach out and to do outreaches, really doesn't grow spiritually. They may, they may grow cognitively. I've known many people who, who knew all the books of the Bible and loved to study deep truths of prophecy, but the winds of the grace of God weren't blowing hot in their heart. Spiritual growth begins with believing. This is why he says here, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, of course, I recognize and you recognize that often it is a journey of God working in someone to get them from unbelief to belief. There are those moments of instantaneous repentance where someone has no knowledge of Christ, the gospel is presented, and they're saved. We see this a lot on the mission field in places where the gospel is not gone. We do not live in that type of area. You don't know anybody that's never heard of Jesus. You may know more than you realize who've never had the gospel clearly articulated, because it becomes convoluted and confused due to anemic pulpits. But but you know everybody, or everybody you know in your life has heard of Jesus, and many can articulate parts of the gospel. And often there is this journey of brokenness and getting to the end of yourself before you turn to Christ, repent, and trust. I recognize that. But the only goal of that journey is salvation, and before that, There can be really no spiritual growth because you're dealing with a dead woman or a dead man. Becoming saved isn't improving your life. It's going from being dead spiritually to being made alive. So, growth begins with believing. But then, secondly, believing leads to belonging. When you believe upon Christ, you're no longer out you're in, and that which held you out, your sin, has been removed, which means you are free, which is exactly why Paul says it this way, beginning in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. A little bit later in chapter 4, verse 6, I'll put it on the screen. He says this, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, notice the difference between a veil and light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when someone comes to know the Lord, they can fully see Christ. And when they see him by faith, they see the condemnation of their sin disappear. They're free. They belong. We don't grow people to get them into heaven. God saves people, and we help grow them spiritually on their way. And as we grow spiritually, that believing, which leads to belonging, lets the belonging, thirdly, lead to beholding. This is so important. I think the vast majority of Christians struggle with this, and I'm not picking on you. I'm just going on observation. You start talking to people about spiritual growth, they immediately go to habits and disciplines. I love habits and disciplines. That's the second half of the sermon. Stay tuned. But but if the habits and disciplines are an end in and of themselves, you'll, you'll, you'll miss spiritual growth. Look what Paul says here. He says, But when the one turns to the Lord, verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is, the Lord is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. In other words, the sin that separated me from seeing Christ, the, the spiritual death that was reversed by spiritual resurrection, that gives me life inwardly, all those come together first and foremost, not to help me do anything, but to help me see His glory. And when I see Him for who He is, (laughs) I automatically want to grow toward Him. I mean, at some point in your life, I hope you've had the experience of tackling something hard, and in that journey, what kept you motivated was the picture of where you're going. You you, you may have seen a picture of yourself, and you went, hmm, I don't look real good. And you may develop a picture in your mind of what am I going to look like when I lose 10, 15, 20 pounds? Pounds. And when you don't want to get out of bed, when you don't want to train, when you want to say yes to that extra large French fry and believe that Diet Coke's going to cancel it, if you're being disciplined, you'll stop and go, no, wait a minute, does this help me get to where I'm going? Others of you have done the amazing work of starting a business. Anybody you see that has a successful business, they started you and I tend to look at how they live now and go, well, I wish I could do that. Well, you don't know the journey it took to get them there. But every businesswoman, every businessman I know who scratched and clawed and created a lifestyle out of a business that blessed other people, they had a picture in their mind of where they were going. Every parent in the room knows this. I'm not talking about unrealistic goals, but I know what I want to see out of my children when they're adults. I don't know their profession. I don't know where they're going to live. They're not going to put a trailer in my backyard. We broke that pattern. I moved from Alabama. But I don't know. I don't know where they're going to live. I don't know where they're going to study. I don't, I don't, know. I don't know whom they're going to marry. I've picked four or five people for them to choose from. I don't know. But what I know, I see a picture of four men and two women who love the Lord Jesus, Who are madly in love with their spouse, who enjoy raising their children, who are a blessing to their church, who love their pastor, who won't be me, who work hard, who share what they have, who make much of Christ. That's the picture I have. They didn't come into this world with that picture. That's not their job. It's my job. I'm their dad. But I have that picture. So, while I cannot guarantee that in every one of their lives, because ultimately, they're personally responsible once they become adults, everything Lord and I do it is to get them to that picture. This is where spiritual growth must begin. It's not just about kicking that bad habit or being a nicer person, it's about beholding the glory of the greatness of God and saying, I wanna be like Him, I wanna be with Him, I wanna emulate Him. I want to speak the way he spoke and love the way he loved and discern and obey the Father the way he did. John Piper, who's written much on this subject, says, beholding the glory of the Lord means seeing him as beautiful, seeing him as valuable, seeing him as desirable and supremely satisfying, a treasure beyond all treasures. I've got the Savior of the world living in me. And and then when the beholding happens, beholding then leads to Becoming, Look how verse 18 ends. He says these words. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, making us more like Christ ultimately, from one degree of glory to another. I, I kind of I have some deep theological thoughts about this. Here's one. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. This is my favorite part. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. This is why growth in the Christian life is a non-negotiable. I believe Christians can go through seasons where they're not growing, but I do not believe it can ever be permanent for that is an unsaved person. When we think about spiritual growth this way, we then end with attention. It's, it's where I'll end this passage. Look at the last phrase of verse 18. For this comes from the Lord, Who is the Spirit? So, the mystery of spiritual growth is, I don't even do the growing. That in and of itself belongs to the glory of God. If you are more mature in your faith today than you were five years ago, God did that. And sometimes God does it in spite of you. But then I'm reminded that the same scripture that teaches the sovereignty of God and spiritual growth, which is, by the way, good news, I don't need it to depend on me. I need him to work in ways in my heart, in mysterious ways, in the deep ways of my mind and my heart that I cannot do. What then is my role? In other words, if I've just preached to you a message of the glory of God in spiritual growth, and I've said what the text said, and the text said that it comes ultimately from Christ when you're saved, and then once you're saved, you're brought into the family, and once you're brought into the family, you behold his glory, and as you behold and look upon his beauty, he transforms you from one degree to the next, this idea of a progression it doesn't happen in one day or one year, but from the moment of salvation and to the moment of glorification when you die, from the moment of salvation to the moment of glorification, there is this metamorpho, this change, this transformation. If that is this mysterious spiritual activity of the Lord, are we to just fold our arms and say, all right, God, go ahead? Well, that's also not what the passage teaches. It's not what the Scripture teaches. In fact, the greater context of 2 Corinthians is that Paul is saying, in response to this great God who would do this for us, We are to position ourselves for it to happen. In other words, the seed of a tomato plant may not be corrupt. The fertilizer may be good and the soil may be rich, but if you don't put a basket around that plant, you're not going to get near the yield. The basket doesn't create the growth. The basket simply creates the environment for the vine to grow to its full potential. And that's what spiritual growth in a church should look like. So, if part one is theological, now don't get nervous, part two ain't as long. Part two is methodological. Meaning, what does church at the mill do to help people grow spiritually? Because you've got to connect that into October 22nd. Why do we want campuses all over this county? Why do why we care about people being in a life-giving church so that we can put tomato baskets in their life that they might grow? Well, again, this list is not exhaustive, but, but people need four things to grow spiritually. You, you may want to write these down. They need to be loved. You won't grow anybody in a legalist environment. You may grow them to be more moral, but it won't last you have to be loved, you need to be challenged, you need to be trained, you have to be told what to do. And then when you stumble, when you're struggling, you, you got to be helped. It, it's almost like these four parts, it's, it's like something you, de- I wish I had a chair. Anybody got it? Can y'all get me a chair? You got a chair. Oh, thank you, come on. Hurry up, Lee, I'm working here. Hurry up, Lee. <laughs> So, so, it's kind of like four legs of a chair here. By the way, this chair's really heavy. I've been working out. No, I'm just kidding. It's not heavy. It's like, this is too small. You got a bigger chair, Lee? Lee, have y'all got a bigger chair? Can you, can you whip something? Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just bring this out. Man, they can do anything. Give them a hand. They can do anything. All right. So, so this is a chair. You are to see the guy we stole this from. So, 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 I want you to think about our spiritual growth as four legs to a chair. And I want you to look at that list of what people need. So, to be genuinely loved, to be intentionally challenged, to be specifically trained, to be compassionately helped. So, here's how we do this at Church of the Mill. And this is how we will do it at all of our campuses, okay? The genuine love part, we try to tackle first and foremost through small groups. That would be this leg of the chair. And, and, and what are small groups? Well, if you define what a small group is, we lead with love. God's Word's always present, but the number one goal of a small group is not to just create an academic Bible study. The number one goal is genuine relationships where people can have community. The biggest risk of a large church is that people fall through the cracks. They, they don't feel like they're connected. Every time a new member joins our church, I would say every class I teach, somebody says, Preacher, we were real nervous. It's awful big. I go, yeah, it is. They go, we grew up in a small church. I said, I did too. We didn't know if we could get to know everybody. You won't. But then they say, but then we joined a small group. And you know what I realized, Preacher? And I play dumb. What? And they said, well, we kind of feel like those 40 or 50 people, you know, the eight or 10 in our small group, the folks we sing beside in the choir, the the lady I serve with on Wednesday night, those have become our church within our church. I go, you are kidding me. That's exactly right. And the other thing I say is when people say it's getting too big, I say, well, who would you like me to tell to leave? (laughs) I can pick a few, but I don't do that. (laughs) The, the, The point is, is that I'm really hoping heaven's big. I'm, I'm really hoping that. And so we, we think small groups are important. But we also recognize that there's also some spiritual growth that doesn't happen in small groups. You want to discourage a small group leader? Weight them down with every responsibility. They can't do that. So, so think about that next relationship, which is the intentionally challenged the mentor group. Now, what is a mentor group? A mentor group is when a man says, I would like to disciple another man, or a woman says, I would like to disciple another woman. These are designed, one-on-one relationships, and typically they are about a year. And i got great news. I'm very excited about this. A tremendous amount of people have helped me with this. I want you to know that when I say it, because I am the author, but it couldn't have happened without a lot of people. We finally, today, we just published a new resource for one-on-one discipleship. It's called 40 been working on it for about three years, and and it it is everything you need to disciple another person in an entire year. The reason it's called 40 is because it's 40 weeks of material because time you back out, 4th of July, Christmas, your ear infection, that kid's stomach bug, you know, about 40 meetings a year leads to discipleship. It's not a book for you just to buy and read. That's not what it is. It's a tool that you want to use when you're discipling another person. And we have some small pockets of these groups happening. And now that we have our resource ready, they're going to continue down the road. But even in the midst of a small group and in a discipleship relationship, sometimes you just want to dig deeper into something. And that's where our equipping classes come into play. These are not long term commitments. These rather are just semester classes that we offer. Probably won't take one every year. You just take the ones that you want to learn more about. Theology, finances, grief share, divorce recovery. There's all kinds of classes that we offer, and we think these are good. They're great one-offs to go a little deeper. Our empty nesters love these classes because they have some time in the evenings to dig a little deeper. But young families do them as well because they're offered primarily on Wednesday nights when we have child care. But I want to tell you something, you can take great Bible study classes, you can be in a one-on-one relationship, you can be in a small group, but sometimes life just really, really, really comes at you. And that's when every disciple needs to say, I need to sit down with somebody. I've got an addiction to pornography I can't overcome. My wife told me that she doesn't love me anymore. My, My husband is distant from me. I had a person in my life molest me as a child and I cannot get past that every employer I've ever had keeps pointing out the same weaknesses in my performance and I've lost three jobs in a row and I don't know what to do to help me I don't know who I am that's our biblical counseling ministry and this really is about applying God's Word so what we're doing at Church at the Mill is that we're trying to create a chair that people can set down in and grow that is multifaceted. Now, some of you are smart. You're thinking, man, pastor, if I did all that, I wouldn't even keep my job. How does this work? I'm glad you asked that question. It's real simple. We want your rhythm to always be connected to a small group. You might be starting one. You might be in one. You might be a part of a new one. But we want every member of Church of the Mill to be connected to a small group, some way, shape, or form then I'd love for every mature Christian to take one person a year, just one. I do it every Tuesday morning before work. I can't disciple on church time and then challenge you to disciple because your boss won't pay you to disciple. So, I, I do mine early in the mornings, Tuesday mornings before work. I'm meeting with two young men, and I'm discipling them right now. On Thursday mornings, I'm meeting with my son because he's a senior, and all my boys, their senior year, I disciple them. The way I get them to show up is buy them eggs. So so Thursday morning before work, I'm discipling my son, and Tuesday morning before work, I'm discipling two men. You can do what you want to do. And then and then your reinforcement is occasionally when you see a class pop up that you're interested in that you want to go deeper, take a class. It's one semester, 13 weeks. And then as you're going along, when you come into something you can't defeat, you get into that biblical counseling. So it's not about signing up for 12 things a week. It's about making sure that you put yourself in a position to grow spiritually. Now, think about this. What if we put a dent in those 70% of the families in our community that have no church? Can you imagine how different their life would be if they had something like this to build on? You know why that matters? Because what Paul told the Ephesian believers, this is where I'll close. This is the invitation. I'm about to dismiss you. Here's the invitation. Rather, he's talking to Christians, speaking the truth in love, we, notice the plural, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's everybody, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Now watch this. Here it comes, members. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I don't want to grow campuses, capital, cash, or crowds. I want to grow the church. And the only way the Lord has allowed us a place in growing the church is growing Christians. You know what happens when you grow a Christian? They give, they serve, they invite, they bless. So you're going to end up with the capital you need, the campuses you need, and the crowds to minister to we're not interested in growing those things. We want to grow Christians. Two simple challenges. Number one, you sitting in this chair? You got a small group in your life? You open to being discipled or discipling someone? Some of you may need to say, I I need to sit down with somebody. Others of you may say, you know, it's been years since I've taken a class. Secondly, what are you doing to help me? Some of you are in large, small groups that need to birth new groups. Your leader's done all he or she can. God's calling you to lead the group to start a new one. Others of you may say, well, I just don't know that I'm qualified to disciple somebody. Do you love Jesus, have been walking with him for a number of years? Do you have a certain level of maturity? We've created the resource. It literally has everything you need for an entire year to disciple someone. It's the biggest project I've ever authored. And I did it in response to a group of men and women saying, I want a disciple, I don't know how. That's a fair question, so we've answered it. So so I want you to grow, and I want you to help us grow, people. Would you bow your head with me? There's no song today. There's no altar call. If you're here today and you're struggling, our prayer room is open, as it always is. And all you have to do is step in there and say, I need to talk to somebody about an issue in my life you'll be confidentially and compassionately dealt with. If you're a guest, I'd love to meet you. I'll be out front in just a moment. I'm going to pray. But as I pray, ask yourself those two questions. Am I sitting in this chair? Am I putting myself in a position to grow? And am I helping others grow by my service? Will my commitment on October 22nd help others grow by my generosity? Father, thank you for your grace in our lives and for the opportunity to teach the church this morning. Of course, my prayer for the one in this room that has never believed is that they would see you in all of this and that they would not be able to get to their car until they stepped in our prayer room, spoke to a pastor, and got some clarity as to where they are spiritually that they would know today they can trust you. And for those precious little ones that began our service, they are truly the living illustration of why everything I've said matters. So my prayer is that we would never be a church consumed with growing campuses, capital, cash, or crowds. Lord, we want to grow your body. We don't make Christians because you do the saving, but we do make disciples. And as we make them, we do it through spiritual growth. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.